Well, hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Questions. This is Ryan Polly. We have a lot to talk about on the show today, and so we are going to jump right in. Now, first thing on the list to discuss is that in the next three weeks, I have three interviews set to post. Uh, this week, I recorded three different interviews. Uh, the first two is a two-part interview I did uh, with a person actually that I cannot name who is doing ministry in a country we cannot talk about because it's a closed country, and this person is doing evangelism to Muslims in a closed-off country. And so uh, this person sent, uh, spent an hour with uh, with me uh, discussing uh, how do we evangelize in a Muslim context, what are some things that we should know, what are some things that we should do, and just a wonderful job also just learning about missions overseas and uh, doing things that, man, many of us uh, are not maybe aware of uh, in a country where it's actually illegal to do. And so those are going to be the next two weeks. And then the third week after that, I have an interview with Dr. Craig Hazen on his book, Fearless Prayer. And this is something that we scheduled back in the fall, couldn't get it worked out, and rescheduled for this time. And so those were some fun interviews. A few of you sent in questions for those interviews. Uh, I posted on Instagram. And so uh, if you are following, there are some more interviews that are going to be coming up in the future. There are some emails I'm planning to send out very shortly, trying to get some more on. Uh, I have pretty much one looking like it's going to be scheduled for next month in the month of February. I try to get one more. But these, this is a great way for you to uh, to interact with my guests and, and to ask your questions to people who are much smarter than I am. And so I post those on, on Instagram. I post it on Facebook and give you the chance to ask your questions. So you can always go to facebook.com slash coffeehousequestions. See who I'm interviewing there. Also, at Instagram is at RyanPolly3. Twitter is the same thing, at RyanPolly3. You can text them in at 714-989-6927. That's for you to text in your questions. You're not always going to see who I'm interviewing there. But if you have some questions or comments, you can text them in there. Or finally, uh, just for anything, you can email me in at contact at coffeehousequestions.com. So be sure to check out the next three weeks. We're doing two weeks uh, looking at evangelism to Muslims in a closed country. And then finally, fearless prayer with Dr. Craig Hazen three weeks from now. Second on the list is the big news that I'm sure you've heard about uh, that has been going around talking about the views on abortion and what happened in New York State. Now, earlier this week, I posted uh, some previous podcasts that I had recorded and some more information on that. But in effect, what New York State did was legalize abortion up until the point of birth. Right, so so what has always been legal and is in legal most places is that you know there's a set date around 20, 24 weeks or some places earlier that you cannot get an abortion after that date, unless the life of the mother is in danger. Right, so if there's something crazy happening where we have to end the pregnancy because of the life of the mother, then that was always permissible. Now, what New York did was they changed the law, and now it's where the life of the mother is in danger or when the health of the mother is in danger. And what people are fearful of is that this opens up for mental health and many other different kinds of health where now any reason, almost any reason, can be given to abort the child. Now, what's crazy, though, is that if it's after 24 weeks, the, 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 the child can be born and survive at that point. And so if there were complications, why wouldn't we just have the child rather than 
abort the child, right? Rather than kill the child right at the moment before birth. Uh, it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Uh, other things that were changed was, was language was changed as far as uh, it, it moved uh, late-term abortions from being a, a criminal offense, punishable, um, that is now non-criminal. It's just a health care uh, choice. And so again, moving it away from something serious to now people can perform late-term abortions for pretty much any reason and not be punished by it. Now, I, I don't want to just push back and, and, and cry foul and all this kind of stuff without giving some good reason, uh, without thinking through this issue a little bit. And I think one thing that Christians need to have on the front of their mind, if you don't have it already, is it's one question. The abortion debate comes down to one question. What is the unborn? What is the unborn? Because this is a very simple question, right? We, we can talk about all the different issues of, of what if they can't afford the child or what if, you know, all these different things and all the different arguments that are given in favor of abortion or against it. And it all really comes down to one question. What is the unborn? And the reason is simple. If the unborn is not a valuable human being, then abortion should be legal, promoted, accepted, completely fine. Right. If abortion, if, if ending the life of the unborn is just the same as clipping off your fingernails or removing some extra skin scales or, or cutting your hair, no one should object for any reason and no justification for abortion would be necessary. You wouldn't have to say, well, but the mother is really poor. You wouldn't have to say, well, she had this or had that. You, would ha you wouldn't have to justify it. It, would just be, it should just be perfectly acceptable if the unborn is not human. There should be no need to change any laws or anything like that. If the unborn is a valuable human being, then no justification is adequate. Right? There is no reason that you can give to intentionally take the life of an innocent human being. Right? There is no good reason for that, for the unborn. If you, if you think about it, they're really poor. Could you kill a five-year-old because a family's poor? No. I saw somewhere that, you know, a family already has 10 kids. They can't afford an 11th. Well, what if you killed the oldest one so that you could bring it in so it stayed at 10? Well, no, you would never do that, right? What they're assuming is that the unborn is not a valuable human. Because when you play the exact same reason to human beings who are already born, who we recognize as valuable, then the same reasons, the same justifications don't hold any weight. And so... It's so important here that we think through these things. It comes down to that one question. We can spend a lot of time arguing and debating about different scenarios and all this kind of stuff. And in reality, it comes down to the one question, what is the unborn? And now quickly, because we do have a part two to talk about on why children uh, or youth are leaving the faith, quickly, it's pretty simple. A simple case can be made for the value in life of the unborn. And it's not a religious case. Most people say, you know, keep religion out of it. I don't have to open my Bible to prove that the unborn are valuable human beings. I don't have to uh, quote scripture or anything like that. I don't have to even present from a Christian worldview. We can use science and philosophy to show that the unborn are valuable human beings. And it's pretty simple. The science of embryology says that from the moment of conception, the unborn is a living, distinct, and whole human being. Right, Human parents, it's a human being, it has human DNA, it's alive, it is reproducing, it's not a part of the body, it is its own organism. 
It's, it's developing itself from within. It doesn't need any outside things to add on to it. And so it is a living, distinct, and whole human being. That just comes from science. That's the accepted fact within embryology, the study of embryos. Then from philosophy, we see that there is no morally significant difference between the adult that you are now and the unborn, the embryo that you once were. Right? That when it comes to human value, there's no distinguishable difference in the areas of size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency that would justify killing you then and not now. Right? It comes down to what's called the SLED test. Size, S. L is for level of development. E for environment. And degree, a D for degree of dependency. Right? Your size does not change your value, value. And so since the unborn is very small, it does not become less valuable. Your level of development doesn't change your value. A newborn is much less developed than an adult, but a newborn is not less human than the adult. You cannot kill a newborn because it's less developed in the same way you can't kill the unborn simply because it's less developed. Environment, where you are, does not change what you are. You do not become more valuable or less valuable up in airplanes or under the ocean or in different countries. You're not changing your humanness depending on where you are. So inside of the womb or outside of the womb doesn't change your value and doesn't change what you are. And finally, degree of dependency. How much you depend on someone does not change your value. Yes, the unborn depends on the mother for survival, but so does a newborn. And we would not justify killing a newborn. So does someone who is older or even someone who just simply needs medication to keep living. Some, we, we all have different levels of dependency on other people or on medicine or on something, and that does not change what we are or our human value. The moment we start putting our value in what we do and what we have in, in our functional skills, then now everyone's value becomes different, and there's always going to be someone who's smarter, bigger, stronger, or something they can then start taking advantage of others, right? If we are going to accept universal human rights, which pretty much everyone does, and especially those arguing in favor of abortion would understand human rights and the rights of women and the rights of minorities, realizes that there's no moral distinction, moral, moral difference between these things that would justify devaluing this life. And so we can come at this issue very simply looking at science, looking at embryology, using the tactic from the tactics books by Greg Kokel called Trotting Out the Toddler of, of applying the same argument to killing someone who is born to see if it justifies. And what you will find is that they, they are assuming the unborn is not human. And that's when we can start to help them see and help them think, why don't you think the unborn is human? What is different about the unborn so it's not human, whereas a born human is? They say, well, maybe it's a human, but it's not a person, or maybe it doesn't have value. Well, what makes it lose value? And then whatever argument they use for why it doesn't have value could also be applied to born humans in the difference of, uh, of development or dependency or size or environment. So hopefully that helps. And we need to stand up. We need to talk about this, right? These states keep legalizing it. What's crazy is that, th that we have the, mo the most pro-life young generation in a long time most pro-life generation. And the majority of the country, as far as things that I see, the majority of the country is in favor of stricter abortion laws. However, we keep voting people into office that are not. And they make the laws and they make laws like what New York did, 
where now abortion has been decriminalized and now it is available up until the point of birth for almost any reason. We have to stand up and we have to make sure that this doesn't spread more than it already has. Now on to number three, uh, the main topic of our discussion today, and the topic of why students are leaving the faith, why our youth are walking away. We started this conversation last week. We looked at the first three reasons being isolationism, that the, the church kind of demonizes everything outside of the church, that all the movies and music and everything is just evil, and only Christian things are the good things. We looked at shallowness of how the, the church's teaching is very shallow, that, that oftentimes with students, it's all about playing games and having fun and, you know, just don't have sex and don't do drugs and don't drink and, you know, obey your parents and then everything's wonderful. Rather than actually teaching them a deep theology and, and an understanding of the world. And this is so clear to me when I go to these summer camps and during their free time at summer camp, like up at Hume Lake, during their free time, I will get a number of students come out for a Q&A and sit there for three hours asking questions. Students have questions. They want to go deeper into the understanding of how the world works and how Christians should view major issues around them. And then the third thing that we looked at was anti-science, how we don't want to be anti-science. Look, if, if God created nature, which he did, and if he wrote, if the Bible is his word, which it is, then the two things are going to agree. And so our study of God's word, theology, and our study of nature, science, are going to agree. If the church is anti-science, then we are going to be against the thing that is studying God's creation. Now, it's possible to be anti-a scientific view, right? I believe that the theory of evolution is false, but it's not just because my Bible says so. I think that evolution fails on its own merits. The evidence for it don't hold up. I just think it doesn't uh, answer the questions completely as the Christian view or as the view of creation would present. I think that makes a lot more sense based on the evidence. But we should not be anti-science. Science is a wonderful thing. We have to help students think critically and clearly about it. So now this gets us into our three last points of this conversation. And so the fourth reason why students are walking away from the church is the topic of sex. That the, the church is giving a too simplistic response to it, and it is not preparing them to, to face the culture where sex is everywhere, right? Where, where every, almost every movie now, every TV show, it's almost impossible to watch something that does not have some sort of innuendos or just flat out sex scene or something that has to be skipped, ignored, or just not even watched. It is everywhere. And so if we are giving the message of just say no, just say no, just say no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, it's not working. It's not actually fixing or solving the issue. In fact, there was a study done back in the 1950s at Yale University with William McGuire. And, and he used this study to try to figure out this idea of inoculation, of how to, can we prepare people um, to, against ideas, and so just the same way that inoculation is going to, uh, to help prepare your body and prevent you from getting sick, he kind of thought, is there the same thing that we can do when it comes to preparing and preventing and inoculating from ideas? And so he had a group of people get together, and he gave them the idea or, or the, the statement, people should brush their teeth daily. And then the negative statement was, brushing your teeth is bad for you. Now, some of the people, he gave no preparation at all. He just told them, you know, brushing your teeth, you know, people should brush their, brush their teeth daily. 
and then had someone come up and say, hey, brushing your teeth is bad for you and saw how they would, would respond. Other people, it was simply a reinforcement of a previous preparation, right? The idea, brushing your teeth is good for you. Brushing your teeth is good for you. Brush your teeth daily. Brush your teeth daily, right? Just continuing to reinforce that positive statement. Then there was another group that there was a warning of attack. Someone is going to attack you. Someone is going to present some false views. Just be aware that that's out there. Then there was inoculation of, of presenting the false view. Then there was inoculation plus refutation, where here's what the false view is, and here's how to refute that false view. And then the last group, he gave inoculation plus, plus refutation plus preparation. So he prepared them to think critically. He presented the opposing objections and refuted those objections, and then saw how then they would respond to someone claiming that brushing your teeth is bad for you. Now, I think it's pretty obvious to see here really quick that the best group, the most people that that believed uh, that or that were not persuaded by the argument was the people who had the inoculation plus refutation plus preparation. But here's the surprising group. The people who did the worst were not the people with no preparation at all. It was not them. Actually, it was the people with reinforced previous belief that were the worst. The people who simply just had the previous idea repeated over, over, and over again. And so Dr. Jeff Myers uh, from Summit Ministries comments on this, and he says this. He says, quote, For people to believe a claim, they must be prepared to defend it against its challengers, merely repeating the message over and over again, even with increased fervency, emotion, and clever staging is actually counterproductive, worse than no preparation at all. The antidote to indoctrination is to tell the truth, expose people to the lies that would deceive them, show them how to refute those lies, and prepare them with thinking skills necessary to continue resisting falsehood. And that's where that quote ends. I think that's what we're talking about here when it comes to the topic of sex is, is, is that oftentimes we give the just say no, just don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And it's just that reinforcement of that rather than preparing our kids, helping them see that, that Christianity is not just a big list of don'ts, which I talk about often on here, but it's really pointing to a better do this, right? There's a better picture of marriage. Last night, uh, I worked through. I walked through part one of a talk that I'm doing with a group of high schoolers on uh, Christianity and the LGBT culture, and I'm going to actually be covering part two tomorrow. So part one was on Friday night, and then part two on Sunday morning, and so we're working through a lot of these issues. And, and the first thing that we have to work through is not necessarily uh, this is bad, this is bad, right? You're not doing that immediately. What I wanted to do is I wanted to present the Christian view of marriage and the Christian, the biblical view of sexuality, right? And I think that we get that from Matthew chapter 19 is one. Jesus is asked about the topic of divorce. And in verse three, it picks up and it says, and the Pharisees came up to him, testing him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Verse four, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two flesh, but one. What, th what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And there's the end of verse six. 
So it's interesting, they ask him about divorce, and Jesus quotes two passages out of Genesis. First from Genesis 1, that from the very beginning, uh, God made them male and female, and then he quotes out of Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Right? It's interesting, which of these verses does Jesus need to answer the question on divorce? Well, he only needs the second one. Right? What God has put together, let no man separate, you have become one flesh. Why did Jesus then quote Genesis chapter 1? Why does he talk about from the very beginning he created the male and female? What Jesus is doing is saying, look, back to the very beginning, before there was any culture to try to define marriage or create some institution of marriage, before there was any corruption or anything, from the very beginning, it was male, female, what God has put you together, let no man separate. This is the view of marriage. Now, from this perspective, sorry, I just hit my phone off my computer. From my perspective, from that perspective, now we look at the issue of what about including other views of sexuality and why if this is God's view, if this what is what has been designed and created from the very beginning, then all other forms of sexuality are not okay. And this includes sex outside of the context of marriage with our students. Right? So and but what we have to then present is this beautiful picture that scripture gives us that it's not just a no, just say no philosophy, but it's helping students see the lies that our culture is presenting, that sex doesn't hurt, that, that you can have sex before marriage and, and it won't do anything. When in reality, studies have shown that those who sleep together before they get married are more likely to get divorced. People who live together are even more likely to get divorced. It's not a solution. It's actually creating more problems. And, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. And we have to see and refute these ideas that our culture is giving, is giving. This idea that just everyone is having sex because it's in everything. Every TV show and every movie and everything, everyone is just having sex. And that's just not true. It's not what's actually happening. These are lies of the culture that we can help our students refute. Then we prepare them with good thinking, with a biblical view of sexuality, and actually point them to a better yes. Point them to a better option. You know, I think uh, this is kind of a little bit off topic, but I think it's the same kind of idea in the sense that when I was in high school, I wasn't interested in doing drugs because I wanted to play sports, right? And it wasn't just because it's this just say no, don't do drugs sort of thing. I saw that the people who did drugs would get kicked off a team or get suspended or something, and I didn't want to get suspended, right? I had a better option in front of me, and I wanted to choose the better option because I just liked the better option. What if we approach this topic in a similar way with our students? Right? We present something better to where they actually recognize it's better. Right? The common example here is like, you know, if you have a steak dinner waiting for you and you know that you're going to eat it in an hour, no one stops and grabs McDonald's because they're kind of hungry. Right? You recognize there's something so much better that it's worth the wait. Right? We need to teach students a little bit of delayed gratification, right? that they don't always get what they want right when they want it. And there's something beautiful about waiting. Because when you wait and you wait and then you wait and then you finally get that thing that you've been desiring and wanting so long, it is so much better. What if we approach the topic in this way? I'm running short on time, but the next one here we have is number five. The fifth reason is exclusivity, right? That the Christian worldview is too exclusive in our, in our culture that, that talks about how all religions lead to heaven and how truth is just based on our feelings. Right? But there's somehow, there's some reason there is a problem with exclusivity. And one of the main reasons is that, well, it's just based on belief. We have put Christianity, we have put religion into the category 
of beliefs or, or feelings and opinions, which, yeah, you can't be exclusive. You can't just say this is the only right kind of ice cream, right? We recognize that to be a problem. Instead, putting it in the category of objective truth. No one has a problem with exclusivity when it comes to math. I have never come across a story, and if you have one, please send it to me, but I've never come across a story where a student writes two plus two is five, and then everyone says, good job, way to go, because they don't want to be exclusive and say, no, sorry, there's only one right answer, it's four. Right When you're doing your budget, now that I'm married and we're doing budgets, right? if we're doing a budget and we come out to two different conclusions on what the bank account says, you don't just say, yay, we're both right. We don't want to be exclusive. No, you recognize there is an objective number. There's an objective amount in the bank account. And either one's right, the other one's wrong, the other one's right, I'm wrong, or we're both wrong. We both came up with a wrong number. But there is a true number out there. People don't have a problem often with exclusivity when it comes to these things. We need to try to shift and, have, and show that Christianity fits in the category of truth, right? And that even the non-exclusive people are saying that that is objectively true, that we shouldn't have objective truths. You just can't get around it. So someone to say there is no truth, that's a truth statement. So we have to try to help them see, look, The fact of God's existence doesn't depend on my belief. I cannot believe him into existence and you cannot believe him out of existence. In the same way, I cannot believe a Ferrari into existence in my garage and I can't believe something out of existence that's sitting in front of me, right? What we have is, what we know is the correspondence theory of truth. The truth is what, if the statement corresponds to reality. If what you, if I say I have a Ferrari and I do, then that's true. If I say I have one and I don't, that's false. My belief about it doesn't change anything. You can't believe a sickness away. If I break my arm and I believe it's not broken, I'm just delusional. I'm ignorant. I'm ignoring it. The problem is simply just going to get worse. The resurrection of Jesus, the truth of Christianity, the existence of God, these are not just opinions. God exists or he doesn't. It's not based on what I think about it. Hopefully, if we can help people see why we think that Christianity is true, why we are exclusive. Because then Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is making a statement. If he is right, then Christianity is the only way. If Jesus is wrong, yeah, let's go find something else. But it's not based on my belief. It's not based on my opinion. It's based on what Jesus said and how truth just works in our society. Our last and final point here on why students leave the faith is because of doubters, that the church is not a safe place for people to struggle. It's not a safe place for people to ask their questions. Hopefully we make the church, and and I love when people do this, hopefully we make the church a place where students can present their doubts. We should not be afraid of the truth, right? If Christianity is true, there's nothing to be afraid of because we're going to find the answer. We're going to be able to solve the issue. And if it's not true, we should want to know that so that we can all walk away. I just love 1 Corinthians 15 as it talks about this, where it talks about, look, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, your faith is in vain. But he did rise from the dead, and therefore Christianity is true, and there will be a resurrection from the dead. But then if there is no resurrection of the dead, go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Or go eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Christianity, if there's no resurrection, just go live up your life. Because you're just going to die one day, so live the best that you can. We shouldn't be afraid of the questions. But often, I think, we're afraid of questions because we don't know the answers. 
We don't want students to ask because we don't know what to say. And oftentimes it's, it's takes them a little bit of humility to be able to say, I don't know. Take some hard work to study, to find the answers. But Christianity should be a place where students can ask those questions. They can present their doubts. They can come before us and, and say, look, I don't think God exists, or I don't think this is true, or I think we're doing this wrong. And we go, that's a great thought. Let's look into this. Right? Let's create students who desperately, passionately seek out for the truth. And when you do that, it's going to cause you to ask questions. I've showed that when I went through the book of Genesis, right? You should open it up and immediately there should just be things that just, if you're reading critically, just don't make sense. Ask those questions, think about it, and have the church, have your home be a place for students to express those doubts and to really dig in deep to the research. Because guess what? We've had some really smart Christians for the last 2,000 years answer many, if not every objection, (laughs) at least the ones that have come up so far. And we don't have to be afraid because the answer's out there. We just have to know where to look. So let's encourage our students. Let's help them. And let's even maybe express some of our doubts. If you're an adult listening, express some of your doubts so that your students, your, wherever your student is, whether it's your child or a student in a youth group, then they feel comfortable because we can express some doubts, but then show how we work through it and talk through it. Well, thank you so much for listening to Coffee House Questions this week. I really appreciate your listens and your comments and the way that you participate. You can always comment in with anything that you hear out on the show. And don't miss the next three weeks, two weeks on evangelism in a Muslim context and a closed culture. And then finally, with Dr. Hazen Biola at the Apologetics Program, talking about his book, Fearless Prayer. So make sure you catch those episodes, send in those questions and comments, and have an awesome rest of your week. I would love your prayer tomorrow as I finish part two with my, the students on Christianity and the LGBT community. Thank you so much. God bless. Sip coffee. Think deeply. This is Coffee House Questions with Ryan Pauly. I just won't hesitate to follow your